All right, thanks. Yeah, it's weird. Um, thinking about being in youth group here long, long ago. Um, it's like, we're old now. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, I'm going to be speaking from a pretty famous passage, Matthew 6, uh, which is a passage where the Lord's Prayer is. And I'm going to be going over the Lord's Prayer quite a bit. Uh, I kind of titled this the idea of a father in secret, which I'll get to a little bit later. But I do think, um, I'm hoping that this does kind of fit in line with some of the stuff that you all have been going through. So I know that you all have been reading through Exodus, right, and reading a lot of the laws. Um, and I got to hear Daniel's sermon on YouTube um, last week. So um, I guess I wanted to kind of like introduce or start with that, right, this idea of what was going on last week, right? One of the things I think Daniel was uh, emphasizing, this idea of what the law is, to think of the law a little bit differently, not in terms of like a bunch of standards that you just have to follow, right? But instead thinking of it as revelation to God, like we learn about who God is, what he's about, right, through the law. He did say, yeah, it's instructive. Like it gives us information. It tells us kind of like how to live, what to do. And then also though, very importantly, it starts with God's grace, right? Like it starts, like the declaration even of the law begins with how God feels about us, right? And that becomes the starting point. So I think that in the, on the next slide, right, the first verse here from Exodus, right, that you all did last week, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So like this starting point of the Ten Commandments being a reminder first of who God is. And in particular, the reminder here, right, being that God is your savior, right? So for the Israelites, that's how they would have heard this. I know for us, when we think of God being our Savior, we think about Jesus Christ. But back then, for them, God saving them was delivering them out of Egypt, right? So there's this reminder, like, hey, God is your Savior. And from that acknowledgement, from that identity of who God is, that revelation of who God is, there's instruction, right? So, like, why would you follow God? And Daniel said this, right? Like, we don't expect people who don't believe in God to follow God, right? But why would you follow God? It's because of the knowledge of who God is. So let me give this analogy, which is going to relate to, to Matthew 6. Um, if somebody literally saved your physical life, what would your relationship be like to that person? So the problem is most of us have never lived through the experience of being saved, like literally saved, right? Like we know theoretically, spiritually, you know, ideologically or whatever that Jesus saved us from our sin, but we didn't die from our sin. We didn't experience like being tortured because of our sin or something like that. But if you were held captive, like you were just in some place, kidnappers came and got you and you thought you were going to die. And then some stranger, like maybe it's a police officer, someone who works for the FBI, I don't know. They're like, okay, let's trade, right? I will take the place of you. Like, you know, let's make this trade with the kidnappers. Like, you would immediately, as soon as you're free, you're like, who was this person? <laughs> Why did they do this, <laughs> right? Like, you'd be so thankful for them. Like, basically, you would spend at least the next year or so trying to figure out who is this person, why did they do this? Like, that would carry on with you for the rest of your life, right? I mean, if we really understood this experience of God saving us, like, I don't think we would have problems of, like, 
doing these things that he says, you know, we should do, right? Okay, um, why does this relate? Because I think at the end of the day, you know, Daniel was kind of saying at the end of his sermon, you know, like, um, he was kind of encouraging us, when we think about this instruction, when we think about these, like, laws, we read the Bible, and we hear a lot of things that we should do, rather than just, like, focusing on, like, oh, I gotta do that thing now, I gotta do that thing now, right? Like, there's some kind of, like, experiencing or knowing God and who he is first, like, that's the primary space to kind of go to, rather than just focusing on the Ten Commandments, I need to do these things. Because if you think about it, this, this, is really good, this is really good application or, like, encouragement, because that's kind of what the Jews ended up doing, right? The Jews ended up focusing so much on the law that they lost sight almost entirely of God, right? Um, they have two books, actually, two different books, depending on which sect of Judaism you believe in, that are these huge books that all are just interpretations of the law. So, like, they had to debate about whether or not turning on a light switch was considered work, right? Things like that. Like, they're so focused on those standards that they basically lost sight of the person who is giving them these instructions, right? Okay, so how do we come to do that, though? Like, so if you're saying that a lot of the Bible we're not supposed to like go about and just focus on the standard or focus on the law, focus on the thing we're supposed to do. Um, if we're supposed to focus on the person, how do we do that? Because it might sound like we're very passive then, like we just sit here and we just hope that we experience this thing from God <laughs> about being saved, right? Um, but I would say, or I would argue, that the place or where God gives us instruction <laughs> on how to, how to respond, right, is through the idea of prayer, right? Um, and this idea of prayer is actually a very logical answer to this question. Because if I asked you, how do you get to know God? So like, you know, or how do you get to know any person actually, right? If you are trying to get to know someone, that's kind of what Daniel was saying, right? Get to know this God, get to know who he is to us, right? I would argue that in order to get to know anyone, you have to talk to them. I think it's really hard to know a person without talking to them. Um, I mean, I had this experience, I guess. I guess growing up, I, I kind of like, you know, my dad was kind of estranged. I think I've heard this before. Um, my dad was kind of estranged. We're all good now. Um, my dad was kind of estranged when I was growing up. Uh, lots of different reasons, lots of different struggles. And so there would be weeks where I would like barely see him and basically not talk to him. Like I, there are probably weeks when I may have said less than three words to him. I think this is pretty accurate. Um, and so even though you could say, like, we grew up in the same household, like, I obviously saw him, like, regularly for the most part, I would not say that I had any meaningful relationship to him because there's no communication, right? On some base level, if you are going to get to know someone, there probably is some kind of, you could say, requirement <laughs> of communication. And that's really what prayer is, right? It's just a way for us to get to know God through direct communication, right, talking to him. And that makes sense, because if you want to get to know your friend, what do you do? You hang out with them. You talk to them, right? There's some space, some context for communication. Now, when I say prayer, um, I know that we have a lot of baggage with this idea of prayer. In other words, when I say that word, every person in this room has some image in their head of what prayer means. Um, so, you know, these are some illustrations on the next slide. Um, about prayer, right? I think that, uh, I don't know, I actually don't know. Okay, I, okay, honestly, I actually don't know what your image is in your mind when I say the word prayer. I know that for some people, like I talk to high school students and they tell me like, oh, their experience with prayer is mostly this stuff. Like mostly it's like, I pray before I eat, uh, I pray before I go to bed or like while I'm trying to go to sleep. Like uh, maybe sometimes if they're, 
they're, if they're good Christians. <laughs> Not really, but you know, that's, that's how people think of it. Like they wake up early in the morning and they read the Bible and they pray or something like that, right? Or they pray at church, of course, when people pray all together, right? Uh, we were just doing that, right? Things like that. There's this kind of idea of it fits in in certain parts of the day and it's kind of a ritual, right? It's kind of this thing that becomes a habit that people do. Um, when I'm talking, and, and also like the prayer we're going to look at, right, the um, Lord's Prayer, <laughs> is often, or at least a lot of church contexts, we think of it as a ritual. Like sometimes people will recite it. Um, I, I have students who go, um, who go to churches where they do this prayer every single week. And so they will recite it to, all together as a church like at the end, right? And this is how people think about what I mean when I say prayer or what the Bible means when it says prayer. But as you can tell from what I just set up about communication and prayer, that all I mean is you talking to God. I don't care what that looks like. I don't care how that happens. That could be here, like this. That could be at church with other people. That could be just you in your mind just thinking some floating thought, even not even words, <laughs> towards God and being aware of God's awareness of your thought. You know, because that's communication, right? And communication with God can look a lot of different ways. Um, evidence of this from the Bible. There are a couple verses um, that come up on the next slide. <laughs> um, that, you're good. Um, that are just like kind of like indications that also in the Bible, right? I would, first of all, I would just say though, that most of like, if you were to look at prayers in the Bible, like I don't think a lot of them were very ritualistic. I think that's more of an American Christian thing. If you look at like prayer throughout church history, I think you'd also find this. But in American church culture, we have this idea that, oh yeah, we pray before we eat. We pray before, you know, like these key times, right? Um, I don't, ever see that anywhere, really, at all in the New Testament Bible, right? Like, I don't really see that as an example. Um, but these are more, you could say, alternative ways of thinking about people coming before God, right? The, the, the but maybe most famous verse of this is this example where um, at the very end of a letter, right, Paul is writing um, to the Thessalonians. It's Paul, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And he's writing this idea, pray without ceasing. And it's like, that's not possible <laughs> if you think of prayer as I'm going to sit here, bow my head, close my eyes, and say words to God. Like, you could not pray without ceasing. That would be impossible. So clearly, for Paul, he understood prayer that it was possible. It was almost like a heart attitude of our connection and awareness and relationship with God. That somehow we could continually be connected and communicating with God throughout our entire day. Okay, so very different way of saying this word prayer. There's another example from the Old Testament. It's a, also, I mean, I, I really like it. Oh, sorry, go back. I'm, I'm not done yet. <laughs> from 1 Kings, you're good. Um, uh, this is Elijah when he was persecuted and he was like going to kill himself. He was like super dis in despair and God was like feeding him and like keeping him alive so that he wouldn't kill himself. And then he eventually goes to this cave and he says, go into this cave and like stand there. I'm going to pass by you. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically like he goes past him. There's a great strong wind. It tore up the mountain. There was like rocks everywhere, like an avalanche or something, but God was not in the wind. After that wind, there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after fire, the sound of a low whisper. And then after that, it doesn't say God was not in that. So obviously the poetic implication is that God was actually in this whisper. You know, like he has this incredible power. He has this incredible, like, you know, he's huge. And yet he comes to Elijah in this like still small whisper, 
right? This very intimate kind of space. And you could say this is, again, very much a confrontation, very much a kind of communication aspect, right? And also very intimate, which is kind of what I'm going to get to in this idea of a father in secret. Okay. So I just want to leave that there because I just don't want us to think about or interpret this passage from the perspective of our baggage, our contemporary cultural ideas about prayer, that we should try to understand what was Jesus saying when he taught us about prayer. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of cool about the passage we're going to deal with, yeah, you can go ahead. You, can go ahead. Um, you know, it's a famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. That's where this passage comes from. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's supposed to be Jesus in this picture, and uh, he's on a mountain <laughs> giving a sermon, basically giving a sermon. Um, and in this passage, right, in, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In chapter 5, uh, he talks about the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, as he goes through the Ten Commandments, he, you know, this verse, right, I didn't come to abolish the law. The law here, he is referring almost very directly to the Ten Commandments. Um, you know, instead, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He basically is arguing that I am the fulfillment of this law. This thing that the Jewish people have been doing their entire life, their entire culture, their entire like religious belief, trying to obtain, trying to do, trying to live out. He's like, I've come to fulfill that, to complete that, the thing that you've been trying to do your whole life. Um, and in, in chapter five, yeah, go on. There's gonna be two, I'm just gonna give two quick examples of literal like ref reference to the Ten Commandments and reinterpretation of the heart behind the law. So remember, at this point, we're fast forwarding into the future, right? Because at this point, the Jews were so fixated with these rules that they're like, we gotta live up to that, we gotta live up to that, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. Here, he's revealing, well, actually these rules about, are about what Daniel said last week, revelation of God's heart. And that revelation of the heart reflects how he desires us to also live, right? Instruction. So in these uh, verses, you can see, you have, you have heard it said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not about the murder. It's not like, well, I'm a good person because I never killed anyone. I never killed anyone. I'm good. <laughs> He's saying really the heart behind it, though, is anger and malice and hate towards another. So even if you're like, well, I didn't kill anybody, but yeah, I got mad at my brother the other day, and uh, I got mad at my parents probably on a weekly basis, and you know, like, you're not really getting the heart of God, right? You're missing something about the heart of God. In the next verse, right, um, another example, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, it's like, you know, this idea of adultery, oh, I've never done that, but again, it's like, well, what's the heart behind it? Right. Okay, the reason to show you this is not to make you feel more guilty because that, usually that's how people read this, right? They read this, they're like, ah, crap. <laughs> I thought it was good because I follow the Ten Commandments, but my heart is still uh, uh, off, right? It still doesn't line up with God. Um, and maybe, maybe there's something, some truth to that. <laughs> Sorry, what I mean by that is not that you should feel guilty or condemned, but rather uh, I do think part of Jesus' sermon here is to help people see that only Jesus could fulfill this that on some level, none of us are able to live up to the heart of this law. And therefore, it's only through Jesus' fulfillment of the law that we can attain a righteousness beyond the Pharisees, a righteousness beyond just following these rules, right? A righteousness of our heart. We can't do that. 
Okay, we can only do that through God and Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Okay, but the reason to set this up is because this gives you the sense that he is going to tell us about the heart behind things. So guess what? When he teaches us about prayer, he's not doing a thing where he's saying, here's a rule about prayer, now go do this. He's going to show us what is the heart of communicating with God, right? Okay, so let's go to that. Let's start getting into Matthew 6 finally. Um, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So here again, there's a version of prayer, apparently, that Pharisees or hypocrites, right? And he's definitely talking about Pharisees. They like to be praying in front of crowds, praying on the street corners, praying in front of the church. And then why do they want to do that? What is their heart behind it? They want to be seen by others. They want the praise of others. They want social recognition. Hey, everyone else thinks I'm a super spiritual righteous person, right? That's their heart behind prayer. Um, I would say that this is just really hard to do anytime you pray in front of people. (laughs) If you've ever tried praying in front of people, you're always aware of what they think of you, (laughs) right? It's really difficult. It's just really difficult. It's kind of inevitable, right? Because we care about how each other sees each other. And so when we pray in front of crowds, you know, on some level, I think even though we may be, or hopefully, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully our heart is not just to be seen by others. Hopefully our heart is not just because we want to look good. But we're kind of aware, like, I kind of want this to sound good, (laughs) right? I kind of want people to be like, that was a good prayer, you know? That would be an encouraging thing, right? We're all kind of like that, right? There's some part of our heart that is like that. Um, Jesus says, you know, well, that's not the heart behind prayer. That's not the purpose of prayer. Um, for a while when I read this, I would always wonder, or I, yeah, I was always wonder, like, why do we even pray in front of people then, <laughs> right? And there are reasons, by the way. There's other reasons. There's other purposes. A lot of it is, I think, encouraging other people, right? That's, I think, one of the biggest benefits to pray together is to encourage each other. Um, but he says, Jesus says a cool thing. Sorry. Uh, at, at the end of the previous one, um, he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It means like, yeah, they're going to get what they're looking for. They're going to get praise from people. Yeah. So these hypocrites, yeah, people are going to think they're really cool. They're super holy. They're super righteous. Okay, let's keep going. But when you pray, so instead, what do you do? Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's this alternative, right? The exact opposite he's saying, right? Instead of praying so that as many people as possible can go and see you, you should go and pray so that nobody sees you. You shut the door. And I guess that's what I want to like think about a little bit, right? Why would you pray if nobody can see you? What is your heart intention if nobody can see you to pray? And I think the only answer is because you want to, (laughs) right? Like in some sense, if you prayed, let's say you prayed every morning at 5 a.m. and you didn't tell anybody, you didn't tell a soul. Because as soon as you tell someone, it's like, now it's like, I'm a good person, right? Now it's like, well, people know. They know I'm a spiritual person. But if you did that and nobody knew, what's your motivation? It has to be because you desire to meet God. There's something purifying about that, right? Like when I pray in front of all of you, again, some part of me is going to be concerned about what you think of me. But if I pray in the bathroom (laughs) with the door closed, right, or whatever, like I don't have to worry about that. I can be myself right? My true self, I can say stupid things, things that don't make sense, things that don't sound spiritual to other people, 
right? I can kind of reveal my true self to God. And that's the last part, right? Um, or the, the second part of this verse. It says, uh, fa- you know, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's a very weird phrase, right? Pray to your father who is in secret. What does it mean for the father to be in secret, <laughs> right? Um, I think we get a little bit of a hint because it says, your father who sees in secret, like there's something about, it's kind of like a, it's describing the place, right? Like the place of closing the door. Like that's a secret place now because you're there by yourself. Nobody else knows, right? And so I imagine this kind of thing, like I don't know if you've ever tried to look for secret places. I don't know, this is something that I, I really actually enjoy is like finding little nooks and crannies that nobody else knows about. Probably nowadays it's even harder because of Yelp, right? <laughs> Anytime there's like a nice thing, everyone tells everyone about it. But I know like on, at Berkeley, you know, on campus, I would often like look for these little nooks and crannies. So I had like a couple places. There was like, there's a creek that runs under and near this huge like plaza where every, like hundreds of people walk by, you know, past, right, every single day. But then like they never look because there's this like little creek and then you can actually walk down and like sit next to the creek. And it was this like quiet place next to like the busy place. Um, there's this place in one of the buildings, it's, it's where my geography department was. But if you go to the fifth floor, you can go all the way to the fifth floor, they have like this, um, this open, uh, what's it, what is it? It's a balcony, but it's a really large space and they would have like couches there. And you could sit there and you could see all the way to like the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Like super far, because it was, it was like one of the highest points, I think, on the Berkeley campus. And there would usually be nobody there. I don't know why, but it was beautiful, right? Beautiful kind of like space. Like um, I live in like the Quail Circles near Williams, right? And uh, randomly, I would sometimes like hike off trail, I, yeah, sometimes I'm worried that I'm trespassing. But anyways, um, there's this little trail that goes up the back of um, of the housing, and there's like a random like creek lake thing, like there's a huge like a water. It's like it's a watering hole. That's probably what it is. There's like cattails there and stuff, and you from there you can only see I think one or two houses that are like really high up on the mountains over the top. But like there's this nice little like really quiet area. It's like really beautiful. Like I love these kind of secret places. And if you think about this idea of like a secret place, like there's something about a secret that bonds you to a person, right? Um, I teach sociology and like there's, this, there's studies that they do on gossip. So like telling secrets. And um, the idea of telling secrets, one of the interpretations of why people like to gossip, why do we really like to gossip, is because when you tell a secret to someone, you feel close to them. There's like this bond that kind of makes you like, you know, like only me and you know this, you, you trust me enough that you're willing to share the secret with me, right? There's some kind of closeness that's achieved. So when, when Jesus says, when you pray, you shut the door, you go to, you know, you, you pray to the Father who's in secret, the Father who's in that secret place, that place where only you and him, right, are, are at, you know, that place of intimacy where you can share every true feeling, thought, emotion that, you know, like without judgment, right? Like, he's describing that the heart of prayer is that kind of encounter, right? It's not this thing that gets you street cred, church cred, spiritual cred, whatever, right? It's this thing that's supposed to be this intimate encounter with God, right? And I think the rest of this instruction is reflecting this heart of prayer, 
Okay, so we'll kind of continue to see that. So on the next slide, um, he gives us another example. Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> no, wait, keep going back. Yeah, oh, no, 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 keep going. <laughs> Sorry, there's one more thing, right? Am I wrong? Did I mess up my slides? Yeah, this is it, right? I think you can go back one more, maybe? Ah, cool, okay. So and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Not, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, so it gives us another case scenario, right? The first one was the, um, was the Jews synagogue, right? Um, this one is the Gentiles. And he says, well, the Gentiles, they pray in this different way. They pray heaping up these empty phrases because they think if they say the right things, if they say enough things, they're going to get God to do what they want God to do. If you think about some stories in the Old Testament, perhaps, about people and other gods besides God, that kind of gives you a picture, right? If you think about Greek gods or Roman gods, maybe you've studied them before, like, that kind of gives you a picture. If you think about, like, maybe, like, I, I think of, like, maybe more tribal cultures or things like that, like the idea of, like, shamanism or something, you know, like, rain dance and things like that, right? Like, that's kind of what he's saying here, right? There's a sense that with these other gods, the way they treat them is that if we just say or do the right thing, then God will respond to us. He'll give us what we want. So we want rain, we got to do this rain dance, right? We want God to act in a certain way. He wants us to give us harvest, bless us, something like that. Like in other cultures today, that's still the case, right? Like you go to a God of money, for example, and then you pray for that things, right? Like I know in a lot of Asian cultures, they have this, especially before test time, right? Like the Gaokao, right? Like the big test, you're going to go, you pray to God, and you want to give them certain things and say the right things, and then maybe they'll bless you, right? That's this idea. And weirdly, with the Christian God, we also do this. <laughs> I know, I definitely did this in high school. I would often try to barter with God, right? It's like, God, you give me an A on this test. I know I don't deserve it, but if you give me an A on this test, I will <laughs> go to church for the next X number of weeks, right? Like, that's my offering, God. Please take it and then give me what I want, right? Like, this is one interpretation of how we might respond and think about prayer. And I do think it's one that, at least underneath the surface, we often are somehow, um, we're, we're pulled by, you know? In particular, the idea of asking for things. Um, when I ask my, some of my students, I, again, uh, do some Bible study with high school students, and I ask them about their prayer life, kind of the number one thing that comes up is that they pray when they need something. And that's not wrong. I don't want to like discourage you from talking to God when you need things. But that attitude where your entire relationship is dominated by I need things from you, I would say is unhealthy. <laughs> and I would say that not as a judgment call or whatever. I would just say that as that's just descriptive. That's just true. So in other words, if you had a friend and the only time your friend comes and talks to you is when they need something. <laughs> Right? I need you to listen to my problems. I need you to pick me from the airport. I need you to help me out with this, you know, issue. Um, that is probably not a very fun or healthy relationship, right? Um, and I think what's interesting about what God says here, or Jesus says here, right? He says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It's kind of like saying, wait, what is in your heart, or what is your mental picture when you're going to God asking for these things? And I do think we succumb to this very often. I know I definitely do, and it's been challenging me the last couple months, actually, thinking differently here. Because I know for me, 
I think that my subcon- like in the back of my, sub- somewhere in my subconscious, I'm thinking that God does not want to give me good things. Like unless I, unless I bargain with him, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Unless I pray for this like every day for the next X number of days, it's not going to happen. So what does that imply about who God is? It implies that some part of me believes that God is not good or he doesn't know how to love me. He doesn't know what I need. So Jesus says this weird thing. God already knows what you need before you ask him. So immediately when I read this, and I read this back in high school, and I was like, oh, I guess I never pray for things that I need then. Because <laughs> what's the point? God already knows. So this simplified my prayer life in a certain way, where I just stopped praying for things that I need. I was just like, well, God, you already know, so we, we, we good. <laughs> I just move on, right? Um, and so I, I really did stop for a very, very long time. Even now today, I would say that I really struggle with like, asking God for things. I think that for me at least, there's a bunch of, there's a whole bunch of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons is I'm worried of not getting it. I'm worried that God will say no in some way, shape, or form, or at least whatever I prayed for is not going to happen. And then now what? What does that say about God? What does it say about his opinion of me? Right? Um, Or what does that say even about my prayer, perhaps? Like, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of turmoil (laughs) when it comes to, a lot of baggage when it comes to my relationship with God, when it comes to things that I need. Okay, so Jesus is going to respond to this. And he's going to respond to this in the Lord's Prayer, in my opinion. So let's go on. Um, It says, pray then like this. So he's going to give us the alternative, right? He just told us, well, your father already knows what you need. So you pray a different way. And so his instruction here is an illustration. Again, it's not a law. It's not a standard. It's not literally just pray these words. Um, It's nothing like that. But it's revealing the heart or the heart attitude of prayer. Right? And so he says, what is the heart attitude of prayer? How should we pray? And it's also instructive. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so the, the starting point, where do we start? We start with acknowledgement of who Father is. Very similar to the law, right, that Daniel was speaking about. It starts with who God is and what he's done. Grace, right? Here also we start with who God is, and specifically who God is to us. It's not a generic who God is because it's our Father. Who is he to us? He's our Father, right? Um, I think that a lot of times when we pray, especially when we do a more formulaic prayer, like before, before dinner or something like that, we're not even aware of who we're talking to, right? <laughs> like we might as well just be talking to the wall <laughs> because really we're not imagining or thinking about who we're speaking with, right? Um, What is his heart attitude towards us? What is his relationship to us, right? What does it mean for him to be our fathers, right? Um, What kind of father is he? It says, hallowed be your name, like your name be holy. This idea of holiness, right, represents this idea of set-apartness or just different, right? He's a father who's very different. And so this is where we would think about other parts of the Bible, right? He's a father who, while we were still sinners, he sent his son to die for us, right? He's a father who loves us and accepts us, even in our worst moments, right? Like, he's that kind of dad, right? Um, and that's an important recognition. So, you know, again, I'm going to go back to the idea of, like, conversation with a friend, right? If you sit down with a friend and your friend is talking with you, you hope that your friend sees you. You know, like really recognizes who you are in order for you guys to connect, 
right? If your friend, again, I don't know if you've had this experience, if you met with your friend, your friend is like super like, oh, I'm just like coming, I'm super stressed, like I have so much going on. It's kind of like you're not even there. Like you could just be a wall, <laughs> right? You could just be, you know, a psychotherapist or a counselor or something like that, right? It doesn't really matter who you are. It's just the fact that you're physically, you're a thing and you're gonna just listen to me, right? But it's different when your friend comes to you and there's like acknowledgement, right? There's like a connection. There's like, oh, I know who you are. You know, I know what you mean to me. I know what our relationship is like, right? And that's where it starts, that idea of intimacy, right? That idea of connection. And then from there, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So unlike most of my prayers <laughs> where I'm just like, God, help me with this. <laughs> it starts with, God, what do you want? What do you care about? What is in your mind, right? Um, I forget if I shared this here or not, but like the, the thing that always comes to mind is like my experience with my parents because for the very longest time, I didn't know my parents were people. I know that sounds weird and insane, but I remember this experience in high school where my mom was like, oh yeah, like when I was in high school, I was like really popular. And like, I don't know, there's a lot of boys like that liked me and stuff. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, first, you were in high school? Like, that's not a thing that I've ever thought about. Like, my mom was in high school. Like, the same place that I've been. And then second, like, you had like a social life and friends. Like, I started to realize, oh yeah, like, I have friends who are girls in high school. My mom was one of those at some point in time in the past. Like, that was like... You know, like, like a bomb went off in my head. Like, it was crazy, right? Like, I don't think of my parents as people a lot. And as a result, I don't really think about their emotions and their thoughts and why they do what they do. Like, that never registers with me. So in a weird way, I never had, and this is why I think a lot of like parent-child relationships, you never get to actually have a relationship with your kid until they're older. <laughs> because at least for me, it was like, until I went to college and I was like, oh yeah, these are real people. And then I have some more experiences now. I can talk to my parents in like a more like, oh, like you're a person and we should talk about those things, you know? Um, in the same way though, I think this is kind of similar with God, right? Like God is just this, um, I mean, in the worst case scenario, God is just like, the Gentile God, <laughs> he's a vending machine, right? Like, I put in the right amount of money, I get the right thing out, right? I do, the, I do the fun dance, and then he gives me what I want. Like, that's God. And you can't really, or like, what's the point of having a relationship with that, right? Like, there's not really, what's the point of having intimacy if that's how we see God, right? So like, in this case, space, there's a kind of, the starting point is like, hey, God, you're a person, a, a godly person, you're different than me, but you're a person, you have thoughts, you have desires, you have a way of seeing the world. You have a way of seeing my life, right? You have emotions about things in my life. Um, I want to know that. I, th I think that'd be cool. I think that we would all, honestly, at the end of the day, all of us would want to know that. Like, we would want to know, how does God feel about different parts of my life? You know, how does God feel about the video games that I play? How does God feel about the homework that I do? How does God feel about my morning routine, my nighttime routine, like, my, my, my marriage, my friends? Like, we would want to know how God thinks about each of those things. And that's a very different heart attitude about prayer, right? Um, it would open up new conversations, new ways to experience and learn from God and to experience and talk with God, right? So that's kind of where we start. And the last part here, we do get to the need part. <laughs> give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All of these things are needs, 
right? We have physical needs, our daily bread. We have relational needs, right? We need to help to get along with people, to forgive people. Um, we also have spiritual needs, right? We need God to help us with our sin, with our issues, right? Um, all of these are needs. And so why the heck, doesn't God already know all this? <laughs> What's the purpose of this then? I think we have some context clues, really, because, well, there's a couple context clues, right? One is like, it's every single part of our life, basically. The other is some of the phrasing, give us this day our daily bread. Um, this idea of daily and sustenance, right? Um, I was thinking more about this idea of, of why do we ask for things that we need? Uh, last Saturday, we we're coming back from Chinese school, and Junie, my, my daughter, she's seven, she had like candy or something from after Chinese school snack or whatever, I don't know. And she was asking us, she was asking um, me and Eleanor, oh, like, um, can I eat this now? And then my wife, Eleanor, she was like, yeah, we already said that you could. Didn't daddy and mommy say that you could? And she didn't say it in a mean way. It was more neutral. Like, kind of, I tried to do it that correctly. <laughs> it was very neutral. It wasn't like mean or like, you know, positive. It was just very neutral. But then I was thinking about that, the, her response. And I was like, wait, I really like that Junie asked me that question. It's not because, like, she, like my, my wife is right. Like, we don't care. Like, it's fine. Eat the candy. We don't, that's not the point, okay? But the fact that she asks, it, like, reveals a certain level of trust and, like, it reveals something about our relationship, you know? Like, she cares what we think. She cares what we say. She wants to obey us. Like, there's a connection there. So I remember thinking, saying to Eleanor, or, or saying it right there, like, Junie, we really like that you ask. <laughs> like, even though you don't have to, and it's totally fine, and you know, like, most of the times, we're always going to say yes. Like, we really, like, it's really nice that you ask, right? Like, that's something that's valuable that I would want her to keep doing, even though it really doesn't matter. On some level, it really doesn't matter. I imagine that to be very similar here. Like, God already knows. But something about asking reveals vulnerability, it reveals a desire to rely on God, a trust, right, that we're relying on him to provide for us, right? It reveals this kind of like, we're willing to be vulnerable. Like, um, when we ask for things, it's a vulnerable thing because you can get rejected, right? So with people that we're really comfortable with, we have no problem asking. If you're really close to someone, you'll just be like, oh, can you pick me up from the airport? We won't even think about it. But if it was a stranger, or even like the first time you get to know someone and you ask them, hey, do you want to like go to coffee or something? It's very scary, right? Like it doesn't have to be romantic either, right? It could just be a friend. It's still like, what if they say no, <laughs> right? Like there's this vulnerability that comes whenever we ask, right? And I think it's the same thing, right? There's a vulnerability when we say, God, I really want this. And I think that what's tricky, and I don't have enough time to go into this, but what is tricky <laughs> is if it doesn't happen. I do think that's where we go back to what Jesus says. Hey, you know what? God knows the things that you need even before you ask. There is a trust level there. That if I told Junie, no, you can't eat that candy, there's a reason for it. There's something where it's about something good for her, something that's important. There's something coming later. Like sometimes that's why, that's why we say no, right? Because ah, we're going to do this great feast later, <laughs> right? Uh, but she doesn't know that yet, and then she cries and complains. <laughs> but it's like, well, you know, like this is, you know. So like there's something there, right? There's something about that. And I think that's what's really hard. And I know and I realize that when it comes to prayer and asking, because um, we're talking about all kinds of things, like healing and stuff like that, that can be really difficult. So I'm not going to go into that. It's a huge thing. Um, but just know, I know that for me, 
because of those fears, I've often avoided trying to ask. And in a sense, it doesn't allow that intimacy or a certain dimension of my relationship with God. I don't get to explore that. I don't get to kind of walk with God through telling him what I need, through maybe not getting it, and also like negotiating or talking more with God about those issues, right? Like that's part of my relationship with God that he wants us to have. He wants us to build that dependency over these conversations, right? Um, but ultimately, this is kind of the heart, I would say, behind prayer and why we still ask for what we need, even though Jesus already knows what we need before we ask him, right? Um, okay, I, th I think I should, I should stop soon, right? <laughs> There's so much more I could say. But anyways, um, I think overall, right, like when I think about all of this stuff, uh, I really do think of it as like, this is kind of our response to God. Like, a lot of times when it comes to the Bible, there's lots of instruction, like, ah, read your Bible, that's good. Like, all those things are true. Like, follow the Ten Commandments, all super good. Like, all that is good. But the design of how all of this is portrayed and uh, how all this is conveyed to us is never in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is, it's never just do these things. Because that's what the Jewish people, unfortunately, didn't get right. Right? Instead, what is it? It's doing these things because you have this intimate relationship with God. And so really, if you want to be someone who prays more, if you want to be someone who uh, reads the Bible more, if you want whatever, whatever it is that you're hoping, you know, I want to follow the Ten Commandments better, like, that's great. But like, what do you do? You don't just try to do those things on your own, <laughs> right? Instead, you come before God, you pray, you communicate, you try to learn who God is, what does he mean to me? right? And you trust that as you talk with him, he will help you. That's actually this last phrase, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. It's actually a very, very weird prayer because usually, especially in the American individualistic culture, we are taught to pray, give me strength so that I can blank. Like, help me be smarter so I can do well in the test. But that's not this prayer. This prayer is, God, save me. I can't do it. I need deliverance. I need you to deliver us from evil. Save me like you saved the Egyptians. Egyptians could not free themselves. Save me. We cannot solve our sin problem. Save me, right? The attitude is complete dependence on God. I can't do this by myself. I need you. Save me. I can't learn how to pray like this. I need you. Save me. And the beauty is that there's another person in this relationship. Sometimes we think we're the ones that have to bear the burden to try to experience God this way and try to pray more and pray the right way, but we forget there's another person. <laughs> and that person loves us intensely. That person, the, the best thing that they would want is to have a deep, intimate relationship with us. So they're gonna be working and doing everything they can to make this possible, right? Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word, your instruction, your revelation of yourself, how you come before us wanting intimacy with us, desiring it from us. That's your will, so to speak. That's your desire for each person here. I pray that you would help us to know how to take steps in that direction, how to be vulnerable with you, how to be transparent with you, how to share our lives with you, uh, how to come before you in a way where we actually come before you, the true and living God, the true and living God who loves us so much that he would give everything for us. I thank you that this is, this is how you want us to relate, and I pray that you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.